I ask you to turn back in your Bibles uh, to the point where we were last time in 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, and uh, we made it through the first uh, 12 verses or thereabouts, and um, Paul uses a number of images to describe himself as a gospel minister, and um, one of these images is sort of in the area of um, assignments that are given to an ambassador, a representative of higher official. Um, you see it in chapter 5, he says we are ambassadors uh, of Christ, uh, um, bringing the message of reconciliation. And um, you know, we saw in England not only the death of a queen and the ascension of a new king, but also a change in the prime minister. And in England, when a prime minister comes into office and chooses his cabinet, the cabinet is given what's called portfolios. That's their actual uh, written assignments of the things they're responsible to do. And one of the la- one of the language that's used is they're given a remit, a remit, and a remit is basically this is their area of concern. Let's say it's a foreign secretary, and their remit would be. Uh, the Ukraine and relationships with the Soviet Union. That would be what they're charged to do. That would be the boundaries, the limits of what they're given to do so that the person that's given a remit in that area shouldn't be interfering with someone who has a remit for some other area. They're given a remit to deal with the concerns of uh, of Africa, let's say. And uh, one um, uh, cabinet uh, officer or secretary should not be uh, traipsing upon the responsibilities of others. So the, the work is clear, clear, clearly defined in uh, something like a parliamentary government like you have in England. Well, Paul says there's something similar to that with respect to his ministry, with respect to his work as an apostle of Christ. He has a remit. He has an assignment. He has a portfolio. He has his work set out for him by the Lord and also by the church. I mean, first of all, there was, of course, the vision on the road to Damascus, and he's given his remit to be an apostle to the Gentiles, to open up the eyes of the Gentiles. It says in Acts chapter 26, as he's expressing his um, conversion to Agrippa, um, his his. Uh, remit was directly given to him by Christ, but it was also a remit that was also given to him by the church. When the church in Antioch set apart Paul and Barnabas for the work of the of, of, of that he called them to do, uh, the church uh, met in prayer. The church uh, sent sent them out. They were going out under the authority of the church as well as Christ. You know, Jesus is not detached from his body; he operates in and through his body. When Paul got the remit from the Lord to go and be an apostle to the Gentiles, it really didn't work out well for him until he got the church's sanction, until the church in Acts 13 prays and sends him out. Again, we don't know what he was doing in Tarsus when he was sent there, but we know that in Damascus uh, there was a kind of a failed ministry. I shouldn't say a failed ministry. It was a ministry that didn't, didn't go the way he'd like it to go. And he was lowered from the basket, as he's, he's going to say, at the end of uh, chapter uh, 11. Um, and then also he came to Jerusalem, and uh, there was nothing but troubles that got it as a result of him going into the synagogue and preaching. And the disciple says, well, uh, Paul, you gotta, you got to get out of town. And they sent him to Tarsus and Cilicia. Did he have a ministry to Tarsus and Cilicia? Likely. The outcome of it, we don't know. 
Um, he had, um, you know, other things that Paul did that those scriptures doesn't tell us about. But when the church gathered at, at Antioch in chapter 13 and prayed and set them apart, then it was very clear that it was not only that Paul was being sent out by the Lord, who, whom he's an apostle, but also by the church who sent him forth. And then when the whole matter of the um, question of Gentile circumcision came into view, in chapter 14, at the end of chapter 14, when you had uh, these people, these brethren, I think they're called in Acts, I think they're called brethren, but they were saying that uh, you must be circumcised and keep the law of Moses to be saved. In chapter 15, uh, the Antioch church sends Paul and Barnabas up to uh, Jerusalem, and uh, the matter gets settled at the Jerusalem council. And at the end of the Jerusalem council, we have even the Jerusalem apostles sending Paul out on his remit. It was the arrangement that was made when they gave him the right hand of fellowship that um, he would go to the Gentiles as the apostle to the Gentiles, and they would continue their work as an uh, their apostolate to the circumcision. Um, so there was an area of responsibility that was given to Paul, and that gets reflected on in this passage in chapter. Um, 10 and verse 13. It's, it's reflected on other passages as well. Uh, Romans chapter 15, he speaks about uh, the circuit that he was concerned to accomplish, preaching the gospel all the way from Jerusalem to Illyricum. And Illyricum is someplace north of uh, Macedonia in the Balkans. Uh, Paul went that far with the gospel. And he was hoping that by the Romans, he would then take another circuit that would lead him ultimately to Spain. That was his ultimate destination. He speaks about that in Romans chapter 15. But now you have these apostles, that have super apostles, Paul calls them, who have come to Corinth. And um, they're looking to undermine Paul's authority. And to do that, they're asserting their own authority. They're calling attention to things about Paul that uh, was, was detracting from his reputation. And uh, they're boasting in their own reputation. And so you have uh, Paul speaking in language of boasting and glorying and what you should be glorying in. Um, and he's not really confronting these guys totally directly. A lot of this is indirect, although some of it is quite direct. But um, he is making it clear that he's not going to engage in the same tactics as these people. He's not going to be boasting. If he has to boast, it's going to be in weakness. It's going to be in all the things that they don't think people ought to boast in at all. And he's going to say, that's a mark of my apostleship, my sufferings, (laughs) all the things they think would uh, um, rule me out, really are the actual things that rule me in. But uh, Paul begins in chapter 10 and verse 13 uh, with this note. Again, he's mentioned that these are people that compare themselves with one another without understanding. And if really, if you line these people up, their claims to apostleship, their claims to authority, and you line them up over against Paul, in actuality, there's a strong deficit on their side and a great advantage to Paul and the reality of his apostolic ministry. But Paul's not going to do that. He's not going to say, well, look at me, because they're just going to say, Paul's just a guy that's filled with himself. They're going to find a reason to contradict. And so when Paul speaks about boasting, he says, we will not boast beyond limits. But we'll boast only with regard to the area of influence God assigned to us to reach even unto you. Paul's taken out the remit. He's taken out the assignment that was given to him by the Lord, and he's saying, um, I'm not going to engage in the same kind of thing they do, uh, calling attention to uh, the things that I think are excellent, but hey, look, the reality is, 
I've been given a remit that reaches to you, Corinthians. You're my responsibility. And um, not, you know, he, he, back in the first letter, he says that though you have many teachers in Christ, you have only one father. I, through, through, through the gospel, begat you unto God. I, I gave birth to this church. And you are my sons in the Lord. You are my spiritual children. And you have many teachers, but only one uh, father. Um, Paul was the one who was given the remit to bring the gospel to this region. And those guys didn't do it. They were not first at Corinth. They didn't found the church. They didn't bear with all of the problems that would take place in church planting and areas where the gospels never come, never has come. Paul did, and he got chased out of Philippi. He got chased out of Thessalonica. And they're sitting in their comfort, wherever they are, and they're just following him. He's planted the church. The church exists by his labors, by his efforts, and they're just honing in on his, his work. And Paul's clear in the Roman letter that he's never going to do that. He's never going to preach the gospel where Christ has already been preached. He's not going to just perch upon some other person's labors. He's going to engage in proclaiming the gospel in places where the gospel has never come. That's his remit from the Lord. And he wants the Corinthians to understand that. Our assignment was unto you. He says in verse 14, We're not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you, for we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. Well, in the super apostles, we were the ones. We were the ones that came into this um, new territory, this virgin territory where the gospel had never been preached before. And he says, We do not boast beyond the limit in the labors of others. Uh, we're not concerned again to do what these guys have done to go and get some credit for ourselves in places where churches have already been planted and we're just going to come in after them and say, well, we're the big shots that Jesus has sent us uh, to get a claim for, from you. He's not concerned with, with getting credit. <laughs> it's a wonderful statement Harry Truman made. I'm not sure if it ever so it was, the first time I heard it was Harry Truman. It says, it's amazing what you accomplish when you don't care who gets the credit. When you're willing to, get, to give the credit to other people. But if you're always out for getting the credit, you're always out for people glorying in you, well, that's going to be problematic. That's going to cause conflict within churches. Everybody wants the credit. Paul says, I don't want the credit. I don't care about credit. I'm not care about boasting. I'm not caring about reputation. Back in chapter 5, I'm not, I'm not weighing things in terms of external um, advantages. I'm thinking in terms of the heart. I'm thinking of not appearances, but the heart. Um, he says, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged. Because again, we are the apostles that have first come to you. And that's our hope. That as your faith increases... Our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged, that you would continue to receive our, our guidance, you would receive our teaching, our letters, so that you would be um, conformed to the, the gospel as you should, so that we may preach the gospel. And, and here's another thing that he, 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 he sees the Corinthians, much like he saw the Romans, as major churches in major cities that could be of great assistance to him in the spread of the gospel into other places where the gospel has not yet come. Again, to the Romans, he was hoping to go by them unto Spain. And here he makes a similar suggestion. He wants his relationship to the Corinthians to be what it should be because he's the, he's the pioneer 
missionary that's come to them, planted the church. Uh, he, they're his remit. <laughs> they're his responsibility. And then that through you, as we preach the gospel to you, and as your faith increases and our area of influence among you is enlarged, we, we can move on from there to other places so that we may preach the gospel, in verse 16, in lands beyond you. Going further west, without boasting of the work already done in another's area of influence. Now, if these apostles went off and preached the gospel in India, among the, the Parthians and the Medes and all the lands to the east, that would be fine. Paul's not going to come and trouble them. It's not his remit. It's not his responsibility. Corinthians are. And so he wants to, this relationship with them to be fully restored. Not only that he would have a continuing influence in the church, but that by them, they would be helpers to his labors in bringing the gospel further um, to the West. And so he says in verse 17, um, Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And who can tell me where that's a quote from? Without looking at the cross-reference Bible. <laughs> Anybody know? Well, there's a couple of places in the Old Testament. I'm thinking that the Jeremiah passage. We're going back to Jeremiah tonight, so why not mention something about Jeremiah? Uh, Jeremiah chapter 9. Uh, Paul does this also in the first letter in chapter uh, 2. Uh, he does it in many places. He seemed, again, I think that Paul has this Jeremiah understanding of his, of his ministry. Um, even when he spoke earlier of uh, the, the authority that was given to him for what? For building up and not tearing down. Again, Jeremiah's ministry was one of tearing down uh, as well as building up in chapter 1. Um, here in chapter 9, you have at the end of chapter 9... Uh, verse 23, uh, thus says uh, Yahweh, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, um, justice, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, says the Lord. He, let him who boasts, boast in his knowledge of me. Um, of who I am not in any other thing but him who boasts boasts in the Lord for it is not he who commends himself back to chapter 10 and verse 18 it is not he who commends himself who is approved but the one whom the Lord commends so again he's, he's not pulling ranks so much although he is but he's, he's, a, he's telling this assignment that he has was not a self-assignment. was something Paul appointed himself to. Paul didn't wake up one day and get a bee in his bonnet and says, I want to be an apostle of Jesus to bring the gospel uh, from Jerusalem to Illyricum. And that includes you Corinthians. No, this was something that was assigned to him by the Lord. He's carrying out his assignment and... Uh, the accomplishments and achievements that he has. Uh, again, he says that he labored more all than them all, and yet not me, but um, but the Lord. It was the, it was the, the spirit of the Lord that was at work in him. It was uh, any achievement, any accomplishment. It's not Paul's doing. It's the Lord. And so boasting is to be in Him and uh, not self commendation, 
but uh, Jesus' commendation. The fact that it is the Lord who commends uh, Paul as um, an apostle. And now, um, any questions about that section in verse uh, um, chapter 10? And Paul picks up the argument in uh, chapter 11. And um, this matter of, um, of boasting, uh, this matter of... Um, well, there's another issue, I think, that comes in between uh, Paul and the um, false apostles or the super apostles, these opponents at Corinth. Um, it's, it's not only that they boasted in appearances and not in heart, it's not only that they were looking to horn in upon Paul's labors and the remit given to him, um, but also that these were people who confused divine zeal for human jealousy. Now, I want to point this out in the message this morning. Um, the same word is used in um, the Greek for uh, It's uh, the word zelon. We get the word zeal from that. And the same word is used describing zeal and also describing jealousy. Now, um, when we speak about zeal, generally speaking, we're thinking about a good thing. Although you can be zealous for a bad thing. But it's, it's really the same thing. But the question of the evil or the righteousness, the virtue or the evil, of really both of these things, zeal or jealousy, really depends on what they're focused on. What are you zealous for? Or what are you jealous over? Again, we think usually of jealousy as a bad thing. Uh, we don't want our children to be jealous of one another. If someone's been given a gift, uh, we don't want that spirit of jealousy. No, this is mine. No, I, no, share. Don't be jealous. Don't be uh, protective of, of, uh, uh, of something that you can readily share. You want to teach them to be uh, not just self-centered. And often jealousy is something that is self-centered. You're jealous about your own reputation. You're jealous about your own a glory amongst the people of God. Uh, you uh, stew with uh, anger or bitterness because others seem to be favored over you. And, and so it seems to me that this matter of zeal was something that um, the false apostles were claiming is something they possessed. Um, and Paul was rather timid in his appearance. Um, they were the ones that really were on fire for the Lord. And we run into that. People claiming that uh, they are just far more ze- zealous for the things of the gospel than those, uh, you know, those people that um, don't seem to be excessive as they're claiming uh, to be excessive. And again, it's a question of what are you zealous over? And what are you jealous about? And, and so Paul says in chapter 11 and verse 1, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. And Paul's going to speak about this matter of foolishness. Uh, Let no one think me foolish in verse 16. Even if you do accept me as a fool, so that I may too boast a little. Um, Paul's, you know, ready to be a fool for Christ's sake. And if uh, his appearance and uh, their judgment of him uh, would be detracting from him, um, Paul says that's okay. 
Because again, it's not my reputation that's the pivotal thing. It's the reputation of the gospel. It's the reputation of the Lord. It's the fact that we get things right with respect to him. And you know, if you get things right with respect to the Lord, you can get things right with respect to his servants. You can get things right with respect to his apostle that he sent to you. And so Paul's using this language sort of ironically. He's not a fool and he knows he's not a fool. But bear with me in this little foolishness that he's going to engage in. Uh, for I feel a divine jealousy for you. And these are people who are going about talking about their zeal for the gospel and Paul being backward or timid or whatever else they ascribe to him. Um, but now Paul says, I too have zeal, but it's a divine jealousy. It's not a self-absorbed, self-interested protectiveness over uh, you as uh, my people, as if you were not Christ's people. Um, my jealousy for you, or my zeal for you, or my sense of responsibility to you, is in the capacity of a spiritual father looking to see my spiritual children married to the one who is the bridegroom of the church, the one who possesses the church as his own bride. Paul's just playing the part of a wise spiritual father. I betrothed you, he says, to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Paul says that's how he conceives his work. It's a zeal not over you because you belong to me. It's a zeal over you because you belong to Jesus. And I want you properly relating not so much to me, but to Jesus. Again, properly relating to Jesus, you will be properly related to me as his apostle. Um, You know, again, uh, John says in 1 John, he that is of God hears us. If you're of God, you can hear us because we're not bringing you some self-centered teaching. We're bringing you the word of Jesus. My sheep hear my voice, and they follow me, Jesus says, but uh, the sheep hear his voice through the apostolic word. It's through the word of the apostles that the word of God comes uh, to people. But his concern for them is that they would be properly joined to Christ, in union with Christ, related to Christ, as a pure virgin, married to um, the bridegroom. And again, that imagery is used even in the Gospels where, you remember John the Baptist says he's the friend of the bridegroom. Um, He's not the bridegroom. He's come to uh, prepare the bride for its proper Lord uh, to take, um, uh, for the the people to take their place in relationship to him. And of course, Paul in his letter to the Ephesians uh, speaks about the church being the body bride of Christ, that Christ loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might present the church to himself. Um, a pure virgin, without spot or blemish or any such thing. And Paul says, that's my work, that's my labor, that's again my remit. <laughs> that's the work that's given to me, to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But then he thinks of Christ's relationship to the church as a bridegroom, um, and then he thinks of the scene in Eden, where again, Adam and Eve, um, created in the image and likeness of God, created for God, 
created to be in proper relationship to God, had that creation relationship disturbed by the presence of a serpent in Eden. I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led away from a sincere and a pure devotion to Christ. Again, Christ has spoken in the gospel. He has spoken through his apostles. And again, his sheep hear his voice and they follow him. But Eve also heard, uh, if not directly the voice of God, yet through Adam, that she was not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Of course, the serpent enters in and the serpent uh, uses his cunning, his wiles, uh, to lead the woman away from the word of, of, of God. So the serpent's activity continues in the church to lead the minds of the people of God away from the words of Christ and away from a pure devotion to Christ. And Paul says, I see in the work of these false apostles, uh, these uh, seemingly angels of light who are really ministers of, of darkness. They're agents of Satan that have come into the, your midst to do the work of Satan, similar to what he did in the Garden of Eden. I'm afraid in the garden of God in the church at Corinth, this work is going on. Your thoughts being led away from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And Paul sees this in the way they've responded to the overtures of these false teachers. And he, in a similar way as what he told the church at Galatia, the churches of Galatia, in Galatians chapter 1, when he says, um, for if anyone preaches to you another gospel than that which we have preached, let it be a curse of God. Um, this is happening here. And, and again, Paul's not saying that you've received it or that you've gone astray in totality, but uh, he fears. He fears. I'm afraid that as the serpent, as that happened in the Garden of Eden, so something similar is happening here. And how, how do we test if it's happening here? Well, Paul says if someone if anyone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or you received a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. That's where the fear comes from. You put up with it readily enough. People coming into the church and they're bringing another Jesus, another gospel, another spirit, and instead of the people at Corinth taking a firm stand against it and saying, not here, not here, you have no remit from God to bring that message here, to bring that Jesus here, to bring that spirit here, and look to stop them in their tracks, uh, the people were putting up with it. You're putting up with it. You're allowing them to continue their work. Paul says, indeed, I consider I'm not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Why are you choosing them? (laughs) Why are you allowing them? You've had the work of a true apostle among you, the word of a true apostle among you, the teaching of a true apostle bringing you the true Jesus by the power of the true Spirit of God, bringing you the true gospel in all of its purity, clearly not inferior to these super apostles bringing something different to your attention.
Paul says, even if these people are right in what they say about me, he's not skilled in speaking. He's mighty in his letters, but unskilled in speaking. Paul says, I'm not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way, we've made this plain to you in all things. Again, it's not my reputation as a public speaker that's at stake. It's your steadfastness in the gospel. It's that you retain the same Jesus. It's that you are activated and motivated in um, carrying out your life together in the power of the one spirit. And you remain steadfast to the one gospel of the living God. Now this bit of foolishness that Paul is engaging in is not only with respect to asking him to bear with him as a a father desirous of taking his virgin church to its proper place of union with the Lord Jesus that they would not be deceived by the influence of these people bringing something quite different than what he brought to them um, that they would uh, accept him as not inferior to these people that they're giving ear to um, he's not going to address this whole business of how they have attacked him because appearance would indicate uh, this is not the sort of thing one would desire in an apostle if you were thinking of uh, uh, from a Greek point of view Um, who are the great teachers they're the self-confident ones they're not the ones that come to you in weakness and fear and much trembling, as he said in the first letter. It's not someone who is humble in attitude. It's someone that's filled with pride and self-confidence. Paul said, did I commit a sin in humbling myself that you may be exalted? Again, it was a self-conscious decision of Paul to come among the Corinthians, not as some guy filled with himself, with braggadocia, and look at me, and uh, engaging in the kind of rhetoric that was popular in the Greek culture. He, he refused to do this. He could have. He could have competed in that, but why? I mean, his confidence is not in his ability to be persuasive. His confidence in the, is in the ability of the Holy Spirit to open hearts to the message of the gospel. And that's the great thing you see in Paul's ministry. He goes amongst a group of women by a riverside and they're meeting in prayer and he comes and he preaches the gospel and we read that about this woman named Lydia the seller of purple from Thyatira which is interesting that's over in Asia Minor where God told Paul he couldn't preach and now God brings him over to Macedonia he meets this woman from Thyatira there on business as a seller in purple and it's to where purple dyes that were famous in the city of Thyatira and uh, it says whose heart the Lord opened whose heart the Lord opened that she gave attention to the things that were spoken by Paul that's Paul's confidence that that God would open hearts again the first letter Um, this is a message that Paul was aware is a stumbling block to the Jew it's weakness in the face of Greek canons of what power would indicate but unto those that are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. To those that are called, he expected God to do something through the gospel to call people to himself. That there would be a demonstration of the spirit and of power that would bring people to faith. It wasn't his work, it was really God's work. He's there as a testifier. He's a martyr. 
It's the Greek word for a witnesser. He bears witness. He, he bore witness to the testimony of God. It's God's testimony. It's God's word. And his confidence is in the work of God's spirit uh, to bless. So he was amongst the Corinthians with a certain measure of clear humility, not self-exaltation. He preferred that they would be exalted rather than he. I don't think we can overestimate the importance of humility in the Christian life. There's a reason that the history of the churches is filled with teachers that have emphasized this over and over and over again. Not so much in the 20th, 21st centuries, but you, know, you go read the writings of the you know, guys like the Cappadocian Fathers and read, read uh, um, Basil of Caesarea on the subject of humility and, and, and what brilliance and eloquence and humbling of heart that uh, at least I receive when I read people like that or read Augustine. Um, I'm not sure that in the present day I think C.J. C. Mahaney wrote a book on humility <laughs> and, uh, and not a lot of good well I don't want to comment on C.J. but he has his own problems but nonetheless uh, it's not often that humility is, is, is something that is seen as a, a part of what Christian experience is, is. Um, and Paul says when I was among you I, did, I, didn't, I didn't proclaim my rights over you and it deals with this in chapter 9 of the first letter. I preached the gospel to you free of charge. I didn't take money from you. He says not only did I didn't take money from you, which I could have. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm bringing spiritual things to you. It's no big deal if I take carnal things from you. I should, uh, labor's worthy of his hire, Jesus says. Uh, you shall not muzzle the ox that treads out the corn, is the Old Testament version of this. Paul should have been paid. By those to whom he ministered. I mean, even philosophers among the Greeks uh, received payment. But Paul was going to make it clear to these people who had um, a certain view of teachers that he's not like the many. He's not making this a matter of his own pocket being lined by the, um, by the uh, monies that others would give to him. He says, I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And again, it's interesting that the Macedonians that were more impoverished than the Corinthians were really the churches that led in the matter of giving. You see that in the end of the Philippian letter, that the churches of Macedonia, you know, they, 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 they gathered together to give this gift to Paul. Um, they were concerned to support him. And so when Paul came to the Corinth, first of all, he worked with his own hands. He labored in chapter 18 along with Aquila... Uh, uh, in the work of uh, leather goods that he tent making is how it's translated but it's probably more than just making of tents but working in, uh, in leather goods um, in order to support himself and then he took from other churches rather than taking from the Corinthians in order to serve you made the gospel free of charge to you and when I was with you and was in need I didn't burden anyone my brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. As the tr- truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. And why? Because I do not love you, God knows I do. Um, how do they find fault with him? His motives are pure. 
his servants of Jesus is uh, in a way of full-hearted dependence upon God's provision and the love of God's people, not taxing people, not looking to take from people, looking just to give of himself to others, and how they would not see the transparency of his love, of his good intentions towards them. How would they allow these false teachers to cause their minds to be poisoned against Paul with their little words of um, um, detraction that they were so willing to, willing to do. And Paul says, what I'm doing in this regard, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. They don't. They take payment wherever they can get it. They're looking to line their pockets. They're looking to make merchandise of the word of God, as he says earlier. Uh, he's looking to exploit the people of God for their own benefit. They are filled with themselves. They're filled with pride. They're filled with the love of appearance. They're filled with everything that is not at all reflective of the gospel of God. They don't work on the same terms as we do. Again, we have a remit from God that not only pertains to the extent to which we travel and the geographic boundaries of our labors, but the way we conduct the work, the terms upon which we labor amongst God's people. Now Paul then takes off the gloves And he says, now we're going to get down to business. Such men, whom he called earlier super apostles, in a rather ironic sense, now he calls them pseudo-apostles, or false apostles. He calls them deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. They're putting on the guise of a Christian minister, of an apostle of Jesus, but they're not bearing any of the fruits of an apostle of Jesus. In real sense, if the Corinthians understood Paul's the standard, and then again, not, not in everything is Paul the standard, because Paul acknowledges that a workman is worthy of his hire, so it would be perfectly permissible for the Corinthians to support those that labor among them in the gospel. But in terms of the attitudes, in terms of um, the characteristics, the graces that fills Paul's life, that's the model that they're to be seeking and the people that they follow. Not people like these, coming with another Jesus, coming in another spirit, coming with another gospel, false apostles, deceitful workmen in disguise as apostles of Christ. And Paul says, no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Satan doesn't come in all of the ugliness of his own true nature. He comes and he presents himself as someone who's out for your good and your interests. God does know. 
And the day that you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And uh, you don't really understand that, that God's not concerned about your best interests. God's not concerned about your good. God's concerned um, to hold you down and to keep you back and to deprive you of uh, this world of opportunity that I'm setting before you. If only you'll heed my voice and listen to me. You didn't have to go to the cross, Jesus. Bow down and worship me. And all the kingdoms of the earth will be given to you. That's Satan's devices that we're not ignorant of. And yet for some reason the Corinthians just did not unmask these pretentious, deceitful workers, these false apostles, these apostles in disguise. Paul's going to go back to being a fool. Verse 16. Going back to boasting in things that we would think you shouldn't be boasting in this. This is not anything to boast in. Paul says, let me me for a while play the part of the fool. No, he's not a fool. He's a wise man. He's a man filled with, with godly wisdom. But Paul says, let me just put on the, the... These guys can put on the mask of an apostle. Let me put on the mask of a fool just for a little bit. Even if you do, accept me as a fool so that I may boast a little. What I'm saying with this boastful confidence, I say not as the Lord would, but, but as a fool. Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. For you gladly bear with fools. I mean, you, 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 you're born with these people that have come among you with a false message, with a false spirit, with a false gospel. Now, they're the true fools, but now bear with me as I play the, the role of a fool. And you judge because you're wise yourselves. For you, for you bear, he says in verse 20, if someone makes slaves of you, or devours you, probably robbing from you, taking from you, um, making them your, uh, making you their servants, their slaves, uh, taking advantage of you, or puts on airs, or strikes you in the face. And again, he's taking a little bit far what their conduct was, but uh, they're not ministering to your good or benefit. They're hurting you, and you're allowing it. He says, to my shame, I must say that we were too weak for that. <laughs> we didn't do that. We were just too weak for that. They say we're weak. Well, you should be happy we're weak because we didn't act the way they're acting towards you. In our weakness, we honored you. In our weakness, we served you. In our weakness, we, we ministered to you. He says, but whatever anyone else dares to boast about, again, he says, I'm speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast of that. And then he begins to make the Lines of comparison. Are they Hebrews? They come from Jerusalem? Did they say we've come with the authority of the Jerusalem apostles? Well, I'm a Hebrew as well. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one, he says. I'm a better one. Am I talking like a madman? 
And he realizes that, uh, again, this is excessive. Uh, but he wants them to see, even in his excessiveness, just how wrong these people have been and how wrong they have been to bear with them. He says, with far greater labors. You want to boast? Far greater labors. He says, I labored more than all the other apostles. And it may well be the intention is I labored more than them all combined. And you know, we really think about it. At the point in which Paul wrote the first letter to the Corinthians, um, the Jerusalem apostles, where were their labors? Jerusalem. Yeah, this little area here of Jerusalem. Ministering to Jews only. They had the apostleship to the Gentiles. There are like 11 of these guys there doing that work. Now, it's 12, including Matthias, who joined them. But um, assuming that many of them, because of other reasons, had left, yet their, their area of remit didn't go all that far. Not yet. I mean, eventually we read, church history says Thomas went to India. Who um, went down into Alexandria? Was that Andrew? Andrew was down in, I believe, in Africa, North Alexandria. But there's all kinds of uh, uh, traditions about who went where. Um, but at least in the time of the biblical record, they didn't get this vision of the gospel among the Gentiles. Paul took the lead in that. The Antioch church took the lead in that. It wasn't the Jerusalem church. Antioch was preaching to Gentiles long before Jerusalem ever sent a missionary to any Gentile land. Paul was the pioneer missionary to the Gentile world. So they're laboring in Jerusalem. Paul went from Jerusalem all the way to Illyricum. And including in that is uh, uh, the province of Cilicia, Galatia, Asia Minor, Come into across the sea, coming into Europe. He's in um, Macedonia, Achaia. Wow. I'd say he labored more than them all put together. <laughs> I would say there's validity to that. When you think of the incredible labors of the Apostle Paul. Now these servants of Christ have a better one. With far greater labors. But not only that, far more imprisonments. Everywhere I went, there was a price to be paid. There were imprisonments. With countless beatings. And often near death. Five times I received at the hand of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Again, it was 40 lashes that was the limit the law set, but they determined, in case we lose count, it'll be 39 that will be the limit, and so um, they didn't want to break the law, so they had 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. That's Roman scourging, with the cat of nine tails, pulling out uh, with metal pieces, bits of people's skin, when they were beaten. Once I was stoned, probably at Lystra, in Acts 14 is talking about that. Three times I was shipwrecked. Do you think the book of Acts tells us everything about Paul's life? No, we only read of one shipwreck in um, the book of Acts. A night and a day I was adrift at sea 
on frequent journeys, and danger from rivers, dangers from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, and toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And you might think, well, God's given you, Paul, enough to handle just to get through from day to day. And that's what people say when they come under great hardship and troubles. Just looking to get through the day. Just looking to take it day by day. But I think about these kind of multiple hardships that this man went through. Now, he had all that he could do just to get through day by day on his own concerns and his own interests. But he says... Apart from other things. What could be apart from other things? Paul, these are the things that you need to be concerned about. This is what your life consists in. But Paul says, apart from other things. I mean, these things is kind of like I can handle those. There is the daily pressure upon me of my anxiety for all the churches. <laughs> you know, these are not the things that keep me awake at night. The things that keep me awake at night is my anxiety for the churches. Will the Corinthians receive Titus's ministry to them? Will they be influenced by these false apostles that have come in their midst? What about the Galatians? Will they turn aside from the false gospel that they were tempted to receive? Will they turn away the people that say you must be circumcised and keep the law of Moses? What about those Romans and the fact that the Jews and the Gentiles are judging one another about matters of, of diet and matters of days and all the things, that are, you know, pressures that are there. He says he has this anxiety for all of the churches. Who is weak? And I am not weak. Who is made to fall? And I am not indignant. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. So Paul turns it around. All the things that the super apostles were saying are disqualifiers against Paul that would preclude him from being considered a notable apostle of Jesus are the very things that Paul says qualify me. They make me a true apostle of Jesus. True apostles of Jesus endure such trials and tribulations. Remember back in um, chapter of the first letter or is it chapter 4 go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 4 yeah Paul says in verse 9 for I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all like men sentenced to death because we become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We're poorly dressed and buffeted, homeless. We labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We become and still are like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Paul says that's the mark 
of a true apostle. Serving Christ in the midst of sufferings. Who are we serving? We're serving one who is despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows well acquainted with grief. Of the one who said, a servant is not above his master. A disciple is not above his Lord. If they, a teacher, if they hated me, they will hate you. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Goes with the territory. And again, you think of the call of Paul in Acts chapter 9 when Jesus said to him, I said to Ananias, I must show him how many things he must suffer for my sake. That's an, that's an apostolic calling. Right at the beginning, I must show him how many things I must suffer for my sake. Um, again, Jeremiah. Go back to Jeremiah chapter, chapter 1. Again, Paul saw himself as a Jeremiah type of figure. He's constantly using the language that's uh, here in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 1 and verse 17. But you, you Jeremiah, dress yourself for work. Gird the loins of your, of your mind. Get, get up ready for work. Arise and say to them, Everything that I command you, do not be dismayed by them, lest I dismay you before them. And I, behold, I make you this day a fortified city, an iron pillar and bronze walls against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, its officials, its priests, its people of the land. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you, for I am with you, declares Yahweh to deliver you. And then you read the book of Jeremiah and read all of the lamentations, all of the complaints, all of the pain that this man of God underwent as he was rejected by his own citizens of Anathoth, as he was uh, imprisoned, as he was cast into pits uh, in which he uh, uh, was kept for, for, for days. As he was led away out of the land down to Egypt, a place he told people not to go. He's taken unwillingly. And all that Jeremiah endured is very much like the things that Paul is called upon to endure. And rather than that being a disqualifier, that's a mark of a true apostle of Christ. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, he was blessed forever, those I'm not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Aretas, it's kind of like Paul's telling a joke on himself here, was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was let down in the basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. I pointed out last week that usually the picture of the um, of the the hero, the person you look to is uh, someone that's the leader. He's going the other way. He's climbing up the wall. You know, they would make ramps going up the walls of the city. And uh, again, the people on the wall would be throwing things down at the advancing armies. And it's like the first one that got up over the wall. He was the hero, and others would get over the wall, and that would lead to the fall of the city. Uh, Paul says, um, I'm your hero, but I'm going the other way. <laughs> I'm going away from the city. I'm not on the wrong side of the wall, and not as some hero storing it up a ramp. I'm being led down in a basket. <laughs> that's, um, that's the extent uh, to which we need to be willing to suffer. 
to be made fools for the sake of Christ, to be scorned by the people of this world, to let those people who think they have the world um, in their own hands uh, view us as they will with whatever terms of mockery and diminishing. We know who we are. We know that it's for the sake of Christ we endure all these things. Well, we're close to the end of the book. I hope this has been helpful going through some of this material. God willing, we'll complete our studies in 2 Corinthians next Lord's Day. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for being in your word again and how rich is the teaching of Scripture. Even when Paul engages in the sort of uh, rhetoric that we're not familiar with, this boastfulness that he's given to as a fool, Lord, we, we pray we would understand that he's not a fool at all. He's a wise man and he's not boasting. He's simply teaching the importance of having our own uh, understanding overturned by gospel values, not the world's values, not that which puts prizes appearance, but that which apprises that which is the, the truth of, of the heart. Of, um, and Lord, so we pray we would consider these things, you'd give us understanding in them. And now we're thankful for this uh, day we have to be together, to greet one another, to fellowship with one another, and to enter into the morning hour of worship. Be with us and bless us as we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.